Our God, as we stand in your presence with an attitude of, of surrender and commitment, let us not ever do it lightly. But thank you, Father, for meeting with us and filling our lives with your presence and your love. Thank you for building hope into our lives, a sure hope, steadfast hope, hope that is based upon the faithfulness of our God who loved us and gave himself for us that we might be saved, that we might be in his family, that we might be people of hope. Lord, we give you our life. We give you our soul. Because you've claimed it for your very own. You've you've claimed us as your treasure. We want to live lives that reflect the love you've placed in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinking about that. The reality of being in the family of God and, and waking up every day and knowing that and, and all that that means. Do you ever think about that? The difference it would make if you woke up and were not part of the family of God. The, the fact that we get up to, to wake up every morning and, and whether there are trials or tribulations or, or struggles or, or, or physical challenges, things that are, are set before us in the day, we know this one thing that Jesus Christ loves us. And he has granted us the, every reason to be hopeful for the day that is coming before us. And this is a day of hope. It's a day of hope because Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. And we have this grand hope of Jesus coming again. He's promised us. The same Jesus that ascended into heaven said, I will come back for you. And, and we live with that hope. We live with the hope of Christ's return. We live with the hope that, that those who we love, who, who uh, love the Lord and, and have gone from us, have passed away and, and have gone to heaven, they're with him. And someday they'll come back and be gathered. Uh, we'll all be gathered together. And this, um, this arrangement this morning is placed here with that kind of hope, that kind of belief that, that Craig Corner, a beloved brother of ours who's in the presence of the Lord now, uh, one day will gather with the company and we have so many others that we love and, and we're waiting for him. And, and the scriptures tell us Jesus Christ is coming again. He's bringing with him those who are presently with him. We'll all be together, gathered together and we'll be with the Lord forever. That's our hope. And it's the message that we have in our hearts, and it's the reason we get up every day, and it's what we talk to our neighbors about, and what we talk to our friends about, and, and what we tell our children and, the, and our grandchildren. We tell them to have hope in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote his earliest letters to the fledgling, brand new church in the New Testament, the, the letters to the Thessalonians, and he wrote them about hope. And that's why we've entitled this series, Big Hope. And today I want to look at one of the most difficult chapters in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Difficult because there are so many different human constructs and opinions about how to interpret this particular text. And it's a very difficult text. But I I want you to know that at the very end of the chapter, at the very end of the section, the Apostle Paul frames the purpose of why he he gave us this letter, why God prompted his heart to write this. He says, I want you to have eternal encouragement and good hope. That's in verse 16 of this chapter. And so we know from the outset that the Apostle Paul was not setting up or not establishing for us 
some sort of human construct on end times sensationalism or speculation. He wanted to, to, to write a letter to that early church and say, I want to give you eternal encouragement and good hope. And beloved of the Lord, it is my prayer that this morning that's precisely what God's word will accomplish in your hearts and lives as we present this to you, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And by the way, um, we need therefore to have lots of humility, uh, studied humility, but lots of humility in presenting a text like this because uh, interestingly enough, almost the entire interpretation hinges on um, a, a section in this chapter that the translators are confessing to us in your own Bibles that they don't really know how to translate it. If your Bible's the same as mine, if you have the NIV, you'll find in, chap- in verse 3 of Thessalonians chapter 2, when it comes along to the word in verse 3, that, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that, you'll see there's a little tiny square bracket under that word that follows along until it gets to the word come. And uh, that's because the original is not precisely being translated because they can't translate it exactly like the original. But I'm going to make an attempt to help you out there. But, but that's why you need a large dose of, of humility in, in interpreting this text whenever you see something like that because um, the uh, translators are struggling with it. But, but by the same token, uh, I'm not the kind of person who uh, shies away from trying to land on some sort of interpretation. I, I, um, while I, I hope to stand before you with studied humility, I, I'm going to present to you what I really think the Apostle Paul wants us to know and is teaching us. And, and, and I, I, don't, I don't really get enamored with those people who tell, when, when you ask them about their end times beliefs, they say, well, I'm just a pan mill. And, um, you know, a pan mill is, is um, they say, look, I don't get all fussed up about all mills and, and post mills and pre mills and all that, pre millennials and all that kind of stuff. I'm just a pan mill. And when you ask them, what's a pan mill mean? They say, oh, it, it'll all pan out in the end. Well, you know what? That's true. That's true. But that doesn't, that's no license to be sloppy or cavalier with the Word of God, not study it carefully. So um, I'm not a pan mill. I do believe it'll all pan out well in the end. I do believe that. Jesus is coming back. But I think it's really important that we take a close look at this text because the people of Thessalonica were really alarmed and unsettled. They were convinced that, um, that Paul was teaching them something different than he had said to them before. And they were, it says, they were, you know, you're really easily unsettled and you become alarmed by some prophecy, verse 2, some report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And... Um, so uh, it, it's in that context that I, that I want to leap in this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to read this chapter together and uh, find out what God has for us concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that helps us to orientate ourselves in terms of where we're supposed to be going with this text and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers and sistren, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time? 
For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Note that. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is the word of God. As you can see, this is a text whereby you can get into trouble with amillennialists, postmillennialists, premillennialists, post-tribulationalists, pre-tribulationalists, pre-wrath tribulationalists, Arminians, Calvinists. There isn't anybody you can't offend with this text. So, um, having said that, and wearing my bulletproof vest today, <laughs> I want to look at this text, and, and I, wanna, I want you just to seriously journey with me, and we want to look at what it says What's not said, what is said. And I want to first of all say, what's the big hope? Because that's, that's the theme. I mean, that's what Paul was trying to say. Paul ends it by saying, I want you to know about the good hope you have. So what's the big hope in this text? That's where we want to go. The setting, of course, is the coming of the Lord. The gathering of the people at the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. He's, in fact, linked to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. So we have those tie-ins. He talks about the people being unsettled by apparent letters or prophecy or something that's come supposedly from the Apostle Paul. And the word unsettled that he uses here is a, is a word that, that would be used by the ancients of when you tie a boat to the dock, you know, and you tie it and you fasten it tightly there so that you moor it so it won't become unmoored. And when the waves are rocking or the wind is rocking, it won't be unsettled and banging against the harbor. And he says, you know what, guys? You are banging against the harbor emotionally because you think I said something to you that I didn't say to you. In fact, that's why he says at the end of the letter in chapter 3, I think it is verse 17, he wants to clear the, uh, the air with this thing. And he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. Right? He's saying, look, the, whatever you heard, it didn't come from me. Did it, does it look like this letter? Does it look like how I wrote this letter? Does it look like my handwriting? Does it sound like anything I said to you before? Then it didn't come from me. But you're unsettled and alarmed, and so I'm going to take a, a shot, he says again, and tell you a few things. And let me just make a couple of preliminary 
um, or, or talk to you about uh, some wrong preliminary assumptions that some people have as they approach this text. One is this, that Paul was somehow laying down a specific sequential outline of end time events. He is not. There is much more to come. We know that we have the scriptures were progressive revelation. And there was more to, come, more to be revealed about the end times. Paul is not laying out a specific sequential outline of end time events. Secondly, he is setting, this is a wrong exception, that he is setting the initial sign of the day of the Lord. He is not. He is not doing that. I'll talk to you about that in a few moments, why I believe that. And, and third wrong assumption, and there could be many more, but these are ones that I, I think jump at me, that he was somehow conversant with John's writings in Revelation. He was not. Now, here's what I think are correct preliminary assumptions. Paul is addressing the unsettled and upset Thessalonian church over some end-time allegations that, uh, information that he had allegedly made. That is a correct assumption. A second correct assumption is that he is adding no new information to what is already available in the prophets and from the teachings of Jesus Christ, except for the little tricky, nasty little thing in there to try and figure out about what's holding back wickedness. That's, that's something that, um, and, and the, the uh, other temple that he refers to, which some people say, well, that's the AD, 70 AD temple, but um, it's pretty hard to, to reconcile that with the uh, man of lawlessness. A third correct assumption, he does not know any sign of when the day of the Lord will start. He's already said that to us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, now, verse 1, now, brothers, about times and dates, specifically the day of the Lord, I don't need to tell you anything because Jesus already told you when he was ascending that no one is knowing the times or the dates. So he's certainly not setting for us here some sort of sign of the day of the Lord. A third or fourth correct assumption, preliminary assumption, if I may be so humble as to suggest, he has not yet read John's revelation because it was 40 years in the future. Okay, we have to understand that Thessalonians was among the very first writings to the church, the early church. In fact, it's probably the first writings. 51 AD. John's revelation of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ was not recorded till 90 AD. The Apostle Paul was not. So it's, 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 we sit here and look and say, well, you know, Paul was using this and using that. No, he was not because he was not familiar with the revelation of Jesus Christ that had not yet been revealed. Those, I believe, are important correct assumptions as we leap into this. So what's the alarm specifically? Well, the alarm specifically is this, verse 3, or verse 2, that, that somehow the day of the Lord has already come. Now, whatever your model of end times is, and there, there's quite a variety in here I've discovered since starting this series, 
And you're not shy, most of you, to feel free to challenge me on that. And that's, that's good. I'm good with that. I can, uh, I can carry my sword and, and deal with what, what I have. But, but uh, if you're trying to think a little bit psychologically here, let, let's just think psychologically. The Old Testament scriptures uh, tell us much about the day of the Lord. In particular, the day of God's judgment. The day of God where he will judge the earth with his wrath. He will judge wickedness upon the earth. Now keep in mind, these people are unsettled and alarmed. And I got to tell you that if I received a letter that said to me that the day of the Lord has started today, I would come before you and I would say, you know what, people, I'm a little bit alarmed. I need to set you up for some things that you should anticipate. This is going to get really rocky. It's going to get really rough. So they were, they were alarmed at the possibilities that the day of the Lord had begun. And the, the verb tense there is a perfect tense, which says, the implication is that the day of the Lord has come and it's having continuing effects upon us. Now, I understand why they could have been, uh, could have been uh, hoodwinked by some letter that came to them, supposedly from the Apostle Paul, because they were living in a time of tribulation themselves. Since they had come to know Jesus Christ, there were people challenging them. Remember, we talked about the Jews who, who rented a mob to always be hassling them and everything. So they were thinking, man, this thing that, that we think Paul's saying, that the day of the Lord has started, and we're looking around ourselves, and, and it seems to be getting rough around here. You know what? Maybe the day of the Lord has come. And so that's why they were, I think, rattled and alarmed and concerned. They were reacting to the fact that Paul had already taught them in his earlier, earlier letter that they were to be rescued from wrath. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that what we looked at? Isn't that what we discovered in 1 Thessalonians? Chapter 1, verse 10, for instance. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath, rescues us out of the coming wrath. Yeah, didn't we learn that in the second chapter of Thessalonians? The, that, that, uh, or, or sorry, the, the third, that, or, I'm sorry, the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, where God says God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Didn't we already discover these things? Paul, why are we getting this from you, that, 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 that the day of the Lord has somehow come, that the wrath of God is now on? And I think Paul has said to him, here's big hope number one for you guys. Chill. Now, I know you're, you're saying, well, I don't see that in the text. I think that's what he said to them in verse 3. I think that's what don't let anyone deceive you. I think he's saying to them, chill, relax. And then there's a um, construction here. Remember I said to you that the English didn't translate the Greek because they just really couldn't do it right, and it's really unfortunate that they used a particular word called until because what is really in between... Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for, and the rebellion, until is not there, is the two Greek words, my in, which means the day of the Lord, really, what I really think Paul's saying, there's two things you would notice if it were the day of the Lord, because the day of the Lord cannot, no way, unless certain things are obvious to you. In other words, not, he's not saying the day of the Lord will not come until you see these things happening. He's saying the day of the Lord could not possibly have come unless these things were happening. It cannot, no way, unless. That's how I understand that he is actually talking to them here. He's saying, you don't need to be alarmed. Why are you alarmed? Why are you unsettled? There's no possible way you could be in the day of the Lord, in the day of God's wrath, in the day of God's 
uh, bringing down judgment upon wickedness unless you are also witnessing at the same time two very important and significant things. One, the defection, the rebellion, and two, the coming of the man of lawlessness, the revealing, the apocalypsis of the man of lawlessness. Remember I said to you, he's not telling us anything new. He's telling us to, the two things that we're already, we already knew from, from the teachings of Jesus and that we know from the writings of the prophets. Now let me just break down this for you a little bit more. He says, don't, don't you remember this stuff? I told you this stuff. See, in verse 5, he says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? He didn't write down everything he told them for us. Now, um, Jesus talked about this rebellion in Matthew chapter 24. We've already seen it. And Paul is just reiterating what Christ had said to them, that at the end, the day of the Lord, you can expect a rebellion. It says in verse 10 um, of Matthew chapter 24, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Paul's saying, I'm, that's what I'm telling you. I told, I told you before what Jesus said. Jesus said there'd be this, this massive defection, this rebellion. You would be seeing that. And he says, look around yourselves. Are you seeing that? What are you seeing, he says in the church? You're seeing, you're seeing people with supersized faith. You're seeing people whose love is landing all over. You're seeing in the church people coming to Christ. You're not seeing people defecting from Christ. says, it can't be the day of the Lord. Doesn't look right. Doesn't smell right. He says, this, is, um, this rebellion that, that Jesus was talking about, the rebellion, by the way, definite article, the defection, the apostasy. It's, a, it's a, a defined one. This is a very specific revolt. It's connected to, a, 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 the, the sense is it would be connected to a leader who leads some sort of revolt, some sort of defection, defying the very high king of glory. Very specific. That's what he's talking about. Secondly, he says, not only that, but you, you, you've got to see the man of lawlessness. He's got to be revealed. He's got, there's got to be the apocalypsis of the Antichrist. Now, um, Paul's just digging this out of Daniel and the other prophets. In fact, um, you, you should turn for a moment because I think, I think I need to show you just a couple of things so you can see what... Paul is talking about here in his reference. Uh, to give you a little backdrop, and, and I, I was saying to the, uh, the morning group uh, this morning, I really need to teach you through the book of Daniel. It's such an amazing prophecy, an amazing book, and um, that's on my to-do list very soon. I, we need to work our way through that. But, so let me just leap in and say that Daniel made such an amazing prophecy about the kingdoms of the earth that would be, that would be uh, over the years. In fact, the, the prophecies of Daniel are so amazing that liberal scholars always try to update Daniel. They say there's no way anybody could be that accurate. There's, there's just impossible that someone could know of all these kingdoms and how they would unfold unless they were writing back. And of course, conservative scholars, we realize that Daniel was writing prophecy from, from his revelation from God. 
And so Daniel talks about four major kingdoms that would, be in, uh, would, be over, would oversee the world. And he talks about the kingdom of Babylon. And he talks about the pink kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And he talks then about the third kingdom, which will be the kingdom of the Greeks. Then he talks about the fourth kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Romans. And that kingdom will go on until that kingdom comes to an end by the, the high king of glory. And so this is the setting that, that Daniel, or that Paul is referring to, he's saying, I'm talking to you about the man of lawlessness that was prophesied to appear in the fourth kingdom, the kingdom where the, uh, the Gentiles would be ruling, the, the Roman kingdom. And so he writes here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, I want to get, you, get the setting here. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws, the man of lawlessness... The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Time being a year, times being two years, and a half a time, three and a half years. Daniel also writes over in Daniel chapter 8, verse 25. No one understand this. Uh, Sorry, I'm in chapter 9. Chapter 8, verse 25. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, against Jesus Christ. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. I'll give you one more reference, and and there's many more, but let's just look while we're in Daniel. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36 and 37. The king will do as he pleases, this king. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. Uh, Other words, the day of the Lord. For what what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. Now, how is Paul describing it? Keep in mind, let this be ringing in your head what you've just heard. Paul says, this lawless man who is doomed to destruction, verse 3, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. I talked to you about these things. He says down in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. So you have this setting of this lawless one that Paul's referring to. He's talking about this one who will come at the end of time and will set himself up. He will set himself up as the Messiah. He will be the Antichrist. He will be the offspring of destruction. He will have kinship with Satan. He will not be Satan. He will be a man. And it will be an apocalypsis of him. He will be revealed, but not in the revelation of Jesus Christ. His own revelation will be a counterfeit revelation. He will be part of the unholy trinity of, of Satan and the false prophet and the beast called the Antichrist. 
I, I like to name them in, in terms of bringing them a, into a modern context. The opposer poser. That's who he'll be. He'll be the one, it says, who opposes the things of God and he will pose as God. Now, how's he going to do this? It says in the text that he opposes everything. Notice in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God. What are things that are called God? Idols, idolatry. His, His modus operandi will be to deny the legitimacy of idolatry It'll be to oppose the systems of worship. It says here that he, will, he, will, he himself, uh, will, uh, that is called God, or worship. He will take down all the shrines and all the altars and all of the relig- religious artifacts because his strategy will be, and, and I believe the setup is, is, is nicely in place. His strategy will be to say, well, what is it that, that causes our world to be in disunity? And, and the answer, if you, ask the, if you ask the young kids, what is it that causes so much trouble in the world? What is it that causes so much disunity in the world? They will say, religion. Religion is what causes so much trouble, so much challenge, so much disunity in the world. And so he'll, he'll jump onto this strategy and say, you know what? If we got rid of all of the religious trappings, if we got rid of all the shrines and altars and artifacts and all the things that divide us, we could bring this whole world together under one, one great worldview theme. And it will be all about him. This great Messiah who finally brings some sort of peace. Interesting, isn't it? Because we would agree, what what is it that causes so much trouble in our world? We'd agree it's religion. Jesus Christ didn't come to bring religion. He came to bring a relationship. And so he's using the very same strategy, frankly, that we, is, is, is part of our methodology. It's to go and tell people that Jesus Christ is about a relationship. And so he will be the counterfeit Jesus, and he will bring a relationship with people to himself and himself to people. It says in the text that he will, he will oppose all that is God and, and uh, worship, and he will set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, folks... We have a basic problem with this particular prophecy. We don't have ourselves a temple. Now, any of you who've read the New Testament, you know that that we've been taught that the temple of the Lord is our body. We are the temple of the living God. So what, is he going to set himself up in our heart? How's how's he going to do that? No, 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 there's coming another temple. There's coming a a temple that will be built. In fact, um, depending on, on who you read, Time Magazine and various historic presentations... Um, there is, uh, have been many articles written ever since the, uh, the uh, Israel's reclaim of their own, own land, and, and in particular the Seven-Day War. In Time Magazine, actually June 20th, 1967, there was an article written there called Should the Temple Be Rebuilt? And then later in 1985, uh, there was a, 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 a television program on 60 Minutes that actually detailed... Uh, the, the fact that the, the Orthodox Jews in Israel right now are preparing implements and all kinds of things for the next temple that will be built. And if you know anything about the land of, Jer- of Israel, and particularly the city of Jerusalem, you will know that the temple site is presently one of the holy sites of the Islamic faith, where they have the Dome of the Rock. In fact, Orthodox Jews are not allowed to go up on the Dome of the Rock, up into that holy place, 
for a very important reason. Not the least of which is the Muslims don't want them up there. But that's not the reason they're not. They're not allowed to go there. The rabbis won't let them go there because they might walk around on the Holy of Holies by accident. And what it says here in the text of this one will set himself up. It says he will perch himself in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. It's literally in the sanctuary proper, in the holiest part, in the, in the place that was the dwelling place of deity, in the mercy seat, in the place. And he will set himself up there and by illustration define himself as God. And the Apostle Paul says... Relax. Chill. If you were in the uh, day of the Lord, you'd be seeing this stuff unfold. And then he says, and by the way, when things, when this thing lets go, it will be bad. Really bad. But right now, he says, there's something holding it back. Those verse 6. And now you know what is holding it back. He told them. He told them, I'm saying, Paul, I'm sitting in my office saying, Paul, 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 please, why did you tell them and not tell us? It would have been so much easier if I was able to come out and preach on Sunday morning. You would have told us. There's all kinds of speculation about what is this that's holding back wickedness? What is this that's, that's holding the, the, uh, the man of lawlessness being revealed and the, and the defection, the apostasy? What is all this holding back? Who is it? What is it? In verse 6, it's a... Uh, The gender is is neuter. In verse 7, the gender is masculine. So gender doesn't really help us. The speculation has been wild. Tells us that during that time, by the way, this work that, um, in verse 9, this work of the lawless one one will have the fingerprints of Satan all over it. It'll be pseudo-Jesus. Poor attempts to to show God's power and and uh, there'll be wonders of falsehood, miracles and signs and wonders, parodies of Jesus. By the way, uh, you, you, need to, you need to understand this. Signs, wonders, and miracles are no guarantee that God is in it. These are not the authentic- authenticating mark of a believer. Because the very things that, that God... I, I'm not, not saying that God doesn't do miracles or signs and wonders. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't bank on that being your symbol, your sign, your, your authenticating mark of Jesus Christ or the work of God. Because this one, this lawless one, can, can have false wonders and signs and, and miracles that he might deceive even the elect, it says Jesus said. Now, what is it that, that draws us in particular as if we're looking at a defection or a rebellion from Christ? What is it that, that, that really draws Christians in the world of wonders, signs, and miracles? Isn't it healings? When you pay attention to the TV, you watch the guys who are still surviving on television, for the most part, are the, are the ones who stand forth and claim that they can heal people. Well, it's fascinating, but it, in Revelation chapter three, verse, or 13, verse uh, 3... Uh, it, it, remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, if it were, very po- if it were possible, this one could, could um, uh, hoodwink the very elect. Well, it says that this one, in Revelation 13, verse 3, it says, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was astonished and followed the beast, or the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist. Why? Because he had this amazing healing. 
but it wasn't of God. And so um, the mark of the authentic are those who love and believe the truth. Because as you read down, it says they perished because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. That's always the authenticating mark. The authenticating mark of the real work of God, the truth of, of God's work in a person's life, is whether or not they love the truth and believe the truth. See, believing the truth in your mind transfers to your heart and then when you love the truth you actually live the truth that's always the mark we're looking for we're never looking for the sensational speculative we're not looking for human constructs we're looking for genuine authentic hearts that's what paul says here that's who god is looking for now this restrainer uh, there's been many theories about what's holding back wickedness and evil some people said as oh, it was the roman government Because of the way Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 13. Roman government was holding back wickedness. Or governments in general. Others have said, well, it's angels. If you read Revelation chapter 7 verse 1, it talks about the angels holding back the the winds of judgment. Possible. Others have said um, the Holy Spirit. Some have said the church. The church as the salt and light. The work that God calls us to do. We restrain the wickedness. The Holy Spirit working through us. It's difficult. It's impossible to be dogmatic. But, but, but somehow, whatever it is that's restraining will be taken away. Will be taken out. Like, how about... You remember that? It works for me. I remember I told you I'll land somewhere. I hope after the... I'm landing in heaven. That's what I'm thinking. But anyway, um, this, this, this teaching here, it's, it, it, that somehow, and, and, and remember when, when Jesus was with, uh, with people on earth, he said that, that don't be alarmed when I leave because if I go away, I'll send you another comforter and that other comforter was going to be the Holy Spirit, right? Well, when, if Jesus says this is the time where in the day of the Lord and that session where Christ is going to come back, then maybe, maybe they're going to tag each other on the way by. You know, the Holy Spirit's going and Jesus is coming back. I don't know. But somehow the big hope here to those people and to us is the full-blown amount and weight of wickedness is presently being restrained and held back until the day of the Lord. And Paul says, you're not in it. You're, you're in the time of restraint. It's being held back. Big hope number three, the certain doom of this man of lawlessness. This very, I, I don't need to, the, the, the comment is very brief because it's, it's so final and so, so amazingly placed here. It says, and then verse eight, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. You realize this? This power, allegedly powerful, world power man who's holding himself out as God will be taken out by the mere breath of Jesus Christ. The very creator God who breathed the universe into existence will take him out. He'll huff and he'll puff. 
and he'll blow his house down. And just by the mere splendor of the apocalypsis of Jesus, gone, vanquished, Paul says, don't become unsettled. Don't become unsettled when you read of the power and the might and the pseudo-miracles and the false wonders and signs and all of that stuff and all of the wickedness and all of the power that Satan has. Listen. Listen, church. Mere breath of Jesus Christ is gone. The splendor of his glory, gone. Big hope, number three, overthrow is certain. And then as we wind it up this morning, and um, Pastor Steve, if you're the one giving me the, uh, you can come right now, and I just want to wind it up and say this, this big hope for is so amazing that I want, you to, I want you to meditate on verses 13 through 17 for the rest of the week. It'll just bless your heart over and over and over again. The big hope, number four, is the good hope of Jesus Christ and our salvation. Paul says, I want you to line up all of this stuff that's caused you to be unsettled and alarmed and and all of these wild speculations and end-time sensationalism and and, and all of the the nervousness you might have around that and all of the, 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 the discontent and all that's occurred. I want you to put all of that over against the fact that Jesus Christ is your Savior, the one who has called you, it says, from the, chosen you from the beginning. It says it in the text, chosen you from the beginning. And it says in the scriptures that what God begins, God completes. And he says not only that, he sanctified you, he set you apart to serve God with a whole heart. Not only that, he called you through the gospel and you listened and you heard. Unlike those who are perishing and are duped by the errors, you listened to the truth and you received it and you responded to it. And now he says, and you're going to share in the glory of Jesus Christ, the bane of the futility of your fleshly frustration someday will be wiped away as you share in the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ. So he says to them, stand firm. Don't let your emotions become unmoored by anything you hear outside of this splendor of Jesus Christ and the good hope and the eternal encouragement of that. That's what he wanted everybody to really focus on, to know that Jesus loved them, the bright future of those who are in Christ's love can never be shaken. So stand firm. Don't be agitated. Don't let opposition or uncertainties or trials or tribulations or frustrations or physical maladies, any of that, steal from you your eternal encouragement and good hope because of what Jesus Christ has done in your heart and in your life. Our Father, I just pray this morning that that as we take in this truth, it's, it's too overwhelming 
But Father, I pray that you would give us a fresh insight. That we might not become unglued or unsettled or that our emotions would become unmoored from the sure anchor of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray this morning as we think about these things and draw this, wrap this to a conclusion that you would speak distinctively to our hearts because there are two possible camps here this morning, Lord. Those who are still believing the lie, those who love the truth, believe it. But Father, I pray that you might work powerfully as we conclude this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Can, can, I just, can I just say to you that I think as we worked our way all through this, I, I've tried to tell you what I think the text says and what's there, but, but the, the, real, the real heart of what Paul wanted to teach here and what God wants us to have is the contrast between people who believe the lie and people who love and believe the truth. That, that's, that's what the encouragement and the hope is all about in this text. Believing the lie is from Romans 1.25 where it says, instead of, instead of trusting God, instead of believing God, they have worshipped created things. And people all around us, you look at them, they're, they're believing the lie. And what is the lie? That God isn't God. And, and Paul is appealing to them, don't, don't, don't believe the lie and perish. Respond to the truth of Jesus Christ. Give your life to him. The, the, love the truth. And then live with this eternal encouragement and good hope. So I, I want to say to you this morning, I, I don't know where your heart is at, but, but that's the dividing line. That someday Jesus is coming back. And, and, and there are those who have this eternal encouragement of knowing Christ is ours and we are his. Because we love and believe the truth. Don't believe the lie. That God isn't God. I believe that there are some in here who say, you know what, I've been, believe, I've been believing that lie. And, and I realize that the material things I've been worshiping, they can't help me. In the trials and the tribulations and the persecutions, they give me no hope. Jesus Christ brings eternal hope, encouragement, good hope. So um, this morning, right where you are, you know, all it, all, it, all it requires is, you know, Lord, I've been believing the lie that you are not God, that Jesus Christ never, never came, didn't die for me. But now, you know what? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I give my life to you. Forgive me. Come into my life. I want to love the truth. I want to believe the truth. I want eternal encouragement and good hope in my life. I want to be ready when Jesus Christ comes. I'm going to pray as we close. And um, you can do that as we are praying this morning. Just, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come into my life. Father, uh, this is the dividing line. Your grace is sufficient. You're not willing that any should perish. This message goes out because you want people to recognize that you are a powerful and amazing God who loved us and gave himself for us. Took our sins upon the cross that we might, by believing in you, by loving the truth, living it, we might have eternal encouragement and good hope. Lord, if there's someone in here today or few in here today, this is the day to turn their lives over to you. Receive Christ. To hear the message and live. To hear the truth and respond and say yes. Oh, Lord, the work of salvation is your work. Thank you for the powerful work of God's Spirit in our lives to change us. This day, in Jesus' name, amen.